We've been looking at 1 Corinthians as a church, and uh, we've just come to that really famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. We've been doing a series, actually, on spiritual gifts. So we've been homing in on the chapter that is between them, two probably most important passages on spiritual gifts, which is chapter 13. And uh, it's a really important context, isn't it, for spiritual gifts that right at the heart of it is Paul's teaching on love. And we saw last time, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, that Paul said rather soberly, without love, God, uh, the love of God operating in the church, our spiritual gifts are an annoyance, our knowledge is worthless, and everything we do will amount to nothing. So it's quite a jolly talk uh, last time. Is a very serious subject, the love of God being in the heart of everything that we do. But this week I want to look at the rest of the chapter. So let's just read it first, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 13, sorry. We're going to read verses 4 to 13. You're right there, Margaret. <laughs> there you go, all right. Here we go. Love is patient. I just demonstrated that. I hope you noticed. (laughs) Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres, because love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things away from me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd put love on our agenda today. Not just because it's the message. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just breathe into us right now your love. Will you just send your Holy Spirit amongst us? Help us to be open to your love, to be amenable to your love, to be taught by your love today. I pray, Lord, that we'd be a church that is known for its love. That's what you said to your disciples, that look how they love each other. That was to be our distinctive, and I pray that we've been known for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's quite a famous passage, as we've said before. What we've just read there is that prophecy will cease. So there's not going to be any need for any further revelation. Tongues will be stilled because there's nothing more to say. Our knowledge will no longer be necessary because we'll know everything we need to know. It's quite a thought, isn't it? And until then, until that point, our knowledge 
the knowledge that we have is so small, Paul is saying, that it's not worth falling out over. Our revelations are so inadequate, they're not worth boasting about. And because everything that we have here on earth is imperfect at the moment. It's just a shadow. It's just temporary. Except for one thing. Love. This is worth getting to grips with. Love is worth getting hold of. This is worth fighting for. It's love that counts. The kind of love that never gives up, never runs out, never loses its relevance because only love never fails. Love, as you probably realize, is a verb. Uh, it's something that we have to do. It's something that we have to show. Love leads to action, but it's also a person. Love is also a person. God is love. So when we do love, we do God. We actually bring God into a situation Love is the greatest and most important manifestation of God's presence that the church has. When we love, we literally bring God into people's lives. So love should be our greatest ambition and our primary motivation in all that we do. In fact, it should be our only option. (laughs) And Jubilee, if we're going to live up to our vision if we're going to live up to being a church that loves the unlovely, if we're going to be a church that stands against injustice, fights for restoration and healing in people's lives, we're going to need to know this love because fundamentally this vision is about loving people. We need to know the love of God for many people. And the Corinthians hadn't been doing this Paul said that they'd been behaving like children. In verse 11 there, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. It's okay to talk like a child when you're a child. He says, When I was a child, I thought like a child, because it's okay to think like children when you're children. He says, You reason like a child. But when I became a man, that's the time to put the ways of childhood behind you. When I was a child, I behaved like that. Like the way that they're doing right now. He accused them of this, actually, in chapter 3. Let me just read this to you. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere babies, infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still quarreling. You're still, sorry, still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, amongst you, are you not worthy? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul and the other says I follow Apollos you're just acting like mere men you're acting like babies the childish behaviors that he accused them of the jealousy and the quarreling the squabbling you know if you have children they squabble you know have you ever found that parents and if your children ever isn't it just the most irritating thing when your children squabble he said you're squabbling you should be on solid food by now But all I can give you, literally, is breast milk. That's what Paul's saying. All I can give you is breast milk. And now it's the same with spiritual gifts, he says. That's the way you're behaving now with spiritual gifts. You're acting like babies. And you see, the thing about babies uh, is that they're not very loving, are they? Uh, They're not. They're not very loving, not by Paul's definition. I mean, what baby 
is truly patient, for example. Anybody got any experience of a truly patient baby? Steve, I know you have one. (laughs) Truly patient. I mean, they scream, don't they? Babies scream a lot, some more than others. They scream for just about everything, anything, and sometimes for no apparent reason at all, apparently to exercise their lungs, which we allowed them to do every now and again, and then you just... (laughs) I remember one particular occasion when one of my children was exercising their lungs in the middle of the night that I finally lost it. And I said, will you go to sleep like this? And then they turn around and start going... (laughs) But you know, babies just aren't patient. They're not very kind either. Babies are not kind. They're not thoughtful. I mean, they don't care how many times they wake you up in the middle of the night crying. And they don't even have the thoughtfulness to cry quietly. Have you noticed this? You know, you'd think that they could be a little bit more thoughtful about the other people that are trying to sleep in your house, the other children that you have. Maybe they could be thoughtful about your neighbours. Maybe they could be thoughtful about the people in the rest of your town, but they're not. They're just not kind. Babies are not kind. They are completely selfish. Babies are completely selfish. Um, It's all about them. It, It just amazes me how you can have a perfectly happy family and everything's going well, all the routines are clear, and then baby arrives. And suddenly the whole house falls into chaos, and suddenly it seems they're the boss, because everything revolves around them. They're completely self-centered. They never do anything around the place either, do they? Have you noticed that? (laughs) They just lie there, they poo their nappies, and they demand to be fed. That's what babies are like. And then just as you begin to wonder how it's all, if it's all worth it, they smile. <laughs> Cheeky little things. And suddenly you're all kind of, oh, look, you're smiling. And then the pinnacle of all achievement, dada. <laughs> when they say dada, you are just in their hands for the rest of their lives. Acting like babies. But you know, some Christians can be like this too. That's what Paul was commenting on. Some people just make a lot of noise. They just want all the attention. They want everybody else running around after them. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to take responsibility. And they don't want to change. And this kind of person is always falling out with other people because, you see, they have tantrums. They don't get their own way, so they cry and they have tantrums. They cry off responsibility and they cry off commitment because they're tired. You know, babies are really bad when they're tired. And when they have problems, they just want somebody's shoulder to cry on and to say they're there, but they don't want to be challenged. When they're encouraged to repent or do something about it, They don't want to. They're acting like babies. That's what this is about. That's what Paul is saying here. Acting like babies. I wonder, think about the last time that your nose was put out of joint. The last time that you got mad. Internally, of course, because we're respectable people. The last time you got really mad with somebody, really got frustrated with them. 
The last time perhaps that you were unloving to somebody, either to them or about them. Was your reaction grown up or was it childish? Jesus wants us all to grow up. He wants us to be fully functioning adults in his kingdom. He wants us to play our part and not be dependent always on others, dependable, not dependent. Love is a grown-up trait. Love takes responsibility. But then doesn't the Bible say that we need to be childlike? Is it all just about being grown up? Jesus said that we need to become like little children. He says, unless you change and become like little infants, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But there's a difference, isn't there, between childlikeness and childishness. See, Jesus wanted simplicity. He wanted simplicity of faith. Jesus wasn't talking here about love, but he was talking about faith. He says, your faith needs to be childlike. And the thing is about babies is they're incredibly trusting and they're completely dependent. And the thing that really brought this home to me was when we just had our children, when they were first born. There's a common thing that happens, and I didn't know this until we had our own children. Those that have had children will probably be able to bear this out, but there's a common thing that happens is they stare at you. They stare at you in the most amazing way. They just drink you in. They take you in. They don't take their eyes off you. It's the most awesome experience to have this little child that you don't even know, but you're fully responsible for, drinking you in and looking at you. They're fast asleep most of the time, but just when they're born. And it happens for not just a couple of minutes, it happens for several hours. Every time you go near them, they're drinking you in, drinking you in, drawing you in. That's how we need to be with Jesus. That's what childlike faith is like. That's what childlike faith is about. Drinking him in, looking to him. Childlike simplicity, looking at him. Childlike faith. But our love needs to be something altogether more robust and seasoned. Because what we need is childlike faith, but grown-up love. Childlike faith but grown-up love. Too often, I think it can be the other way around. Grown-up faith, but childlike love. You know what I mean? The difference is that grown-up so-called faith is cynical, it's knowledgeable, it's suspicious. That's what grown-up faith is. There must be another explanation. There's... You know, I know a few things. That's grown-up faith. It's very measured. It's not simple. It's not trusting. It's not open like that. That's grown-up faith. And childlike love, well, it's petulant. <laughs> it's fickle. If you've had children, you'll know this, throwing tantrums, which we didn't allow but somehow couldn't prevent, throwing tantrums and lacking patience. I want to encourage you, my exhortation to you is that we opt for the former. 
and lose the second of those. We want childlike faith, but grown-up love. Paul wants us to leave some of those things behind. Let's press into love. Let's be a church that's grown up in love for others, for one another. See, love and the ability of the church to love is one of the clearest measures of maturity that there can be. It's nothing to do with age, maturity. It's... uh, that you know, the, because the, getting older is no guarantee of maturity, as the saying goes. Getting older is compulsory, and maturity is optional. It's true, isn't it? There's no guarantee that as you get older, you're going to mature. Grey hair is no guarantee of any ability to take responsibility, to have wisdom, or to show consistency. It's just a fact. It's just a reality. Grown up. Love, maturing. I've been thinking about this recently because last month was our 20th wedding anniversary. Yeah. 20 years she's put up with me. I mean, it's amazing. What a girl, eh? (laughs) You dance like that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I found myself thinking back to that day when we got married. Actually, I often think about it. Um, but this time, looking back 20 years, I, I look back at it, and I checked this with my wife, that it was okay to say this, but I look back at it really with a degree of fear and trembling. <laughs> you better explain. <laughs> because what on earth did we know about love? What on earth did we know about it? I mean, how much did we really know each other? Because as I look back on that day and the seriousness of what we did, you know, the vows that we took before God and many others, to whom you feel a degree of responsibility and accountability, I'm not so sure that at 23 and 24 years old, I had any idea what I was doing. Neither of us did. We hardly knew each other. We hardly knew ourselves. And there was very little depth or maturity in our love. I see that now as I look back, and it makes me tremble, thinking, my goodness me, how did I step out on that? It was just about enough to get started, really. And actually, it was probably more like childlike faith than love. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, if you've been married a few years. But, you know, that's the thing about love. It doesn't have to be perfect before we choose to love. Thank God for that, eh? It doesn't have to be perfect. Even today, you can take a step of faith to love in simplicity and in obedience to God, and it's enough to get started with. And it's amazing how often when you take that step of faith, the love actually starts to fill your heart. And I want to encourage you in your relationships here today. I want to encourage you in your marriage and in your friendships, to choose to love again, to make a choice about that again today. And, you know, over the years, I've got to say that our love has grown, it's deepened, and it's matured to such an extent that when I look back to that wedding day, by comparison, it's almost like we never loved each other at all. In comparison, 
to how we love each other now. And that's because over the years, we've made continual choices to keep loving each other. Despite the frustrations that I've caused, the irritations, the hurts, you do hurt each other. The difficulties that we've faced through these decisions, these continual decisions, our love has matured. And I want to encourage you, if you're newly married, you know, in the last few years, keep making those decisions to love. There will come points in your life where you'll think, I don't really love her anymore. And the world will tell you, well, that's normal. Or he doesn't really love me anymore, or I don't love him. Keep choosing to love. Step out, be childlike in your faith, like the day that you were married, and the love will fill your heart again. I know it's simplistic, that's the point. Childlike faith, grown-up love. But through these decisions, our love has matured. Or is it, in fact, the other way around? Is it that I have matured because of love? I've been thinking about this, and I want to talk about how love matures us. How do we get to be more mature? Has anybody ever asked that question? How can I be more mature than I am? I'm frustrated with where I'm up to right now. I want to be more mature. I want to be more dependable. Um, you know, it's all very well, Paul, pointing out uh, that they're not mature. Uh, or maybe I've pointed that out today that, you know, actually, if I look at it, I'm not mature in all of my, in all of my thoughts, in all of what I say, in all of what I do. That's me. And age is no guarantee. Experience can help, but again, it's no guarantee because that's a bit like age. You just get more experience as you get older. That's no guarantee, again, of maturity. So how do we get to be more tolerant of others. That's part of maturity. How do we get that? How do we get to be more patient? How do we get to be more consistent? How do we get to be more humble? How do we get to be less self-centered? Our wives really want to know that, guys. And here, Paul presents the antidote. Love is patient Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It's not proud. It doesn't boast. It doesn't dishonor people. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love always protects, always trusts, always hope, always perseveres. Love is the answer. Love is what matures us. Love, loving, choosing to love, not the other way around. Love is what matures us. Love does not need to mature. Love is love, and God is love. He doesn't need adding to. Love doesn't need to mature. We need to mature through love. As the Apostle John says, we all need to be perfected in love. We need that work of love in our lives to perfect us, to mature us, to complete us. God's love. Love needs to have its way. Love needs to lead. It needs to interrogate our hearts. It needs to challenge our actions 
and our reactions. It needs to lead, just like love led God to send his only son to die. God was led by love, and God is love. It was love that led Jesus to lay down his life. It was love that led Paul to go to the outermost parts of the world and suffer and was beaten and was shipwrecked. and all. It was love for Christ and love for the people that needed to hear about Christ. Love led. Love compelled. Love, that inward pressure, provided the motivation that was needed. I said last week, that passage in Romans 5, chapter 5, guys, that passage has become a bit of a revelation for me, I've got to say. It says that the love of God was poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what spiritual gifts you've got, but the love of God is the greatest and most enduring gift of all. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. So let me ask you, have you allowed love to lead you? Have you allowed the love of God to shape you? Have you allowed the love of God to influence your character? What about your marriage? Have you allowed your the love to decide your future? Not your agenda, not your programs, not your plans. Have you allowed love to lead? Your friendships? What about those that are harder to love? Have you allowed love, the love of God, to melt your heart? Do you know, guys, some of us can be so hard, so hard, and we need the love of God to melt our hearts. Often it's because we've been hurt. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people too. But our hearts can become hardened and we need the love of God to come again to melt us, to purify us, to change us. Allow the love of God to enter your heart again. Allow the love of God to lead you. I was told a story um, by a friend of mine who's a pastor over in uh, the other side of Birmingham. And he was telling me about this testimony of a of a guy who had been saved out of a sort of Hell's Angels type of background, uh, a biker gang in the US. And uh, now this guy, with all his tattoos and everything, is leading a church, which he was slightly by- surprised by himself because he never thought he'd be doing something like that. But he's leading a church out there. And because of the sense of awe that this guy carries about his own salvation and transformation of his life, Unsurprisingly, the testimony of this man has led many other bikers to come into that rather middle-class church and join them. And that's absolutely wonderful, but how many of you know, how many people know that helping people with messed messed up lives is difficult and costly and can cause a few problems? How many of you know that? Uh, now, how many of us have been in that position? And we know we've been the problem uh, in that time. But they, they, they were causing some problems, having all these bikers in their church. I mean, the car parking, for a start, they just didn't park properly. But, you know, people who've been in the church for years started to complain. They couldn't help themselves. They knew they shouldn't, but they couldn't help it. How do we cope with this? 
And uh, one of these people was an elderly, an elderly lady, and a rather proper lady came to see the pastor in his office one day, and, and she said to him, he said, it's too much. She said, I can't handle any more. She said, last night I was standing behind one of your bikers in worship, and there he was with his hands held high, and written across his knuckles was the foulest words. She said, and I couldn't worship, I was so distracted. Four-lettered words written across his knuckles, praising Jesus. <laughs> and she said, what are you going to do about it? And in response, this poor chap, apparently what he did is he let his head fall and he hit the desk and just kept banging his head. <laughs> And he said, Jesus, help me. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? And then he said, suddenly it came to him. Agree with her. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he said to her, he said, do you know, you're absolutely right. Something's got to be done. He said, it's not good enough. What are we going to do with these people? He says, I need your help. How am I going to love them, he said. How are we going to love people like this? You're absolutely right. Please, will you pray for me? Not only did she start to pray for him from that point, that humility, something began to happen in her heart when she started to pray. And as she prayed, God started to give her a powerful love for these bikers. And uh, this kind of love is amazing because it enables you to overlook some things. Love covers the smells and the swearing suddenly didn't matter so much. In fact, she was regularly seen, this dear little old lady, was very small, I imagine, as something like Margaret Green. (laughs) She was seen around the place with bikers <laughs> in her house. You would be up for that, wouldn't you, Margaret? She'd be on the back of the Harley Davidson, I know. <laughs> and she became one of the leading ministers in that church, reaching out to these guys, spending hours with them, patience with them, having them round her house, feeding them, helping them with their practical needs, many, many Bikers. She would have made them take their shoes off, I know, yeah. But you see, the thing is that love had changed her heart. That's where it started. Jubilee, how are we going to help them? How are we going to love these kind of people? Well, first of all, we need to love them. And then the action must flow from there. Remember last time we said that without love, all your service is a waste of time. It's true. Without love, our motives are suspect. God needs to give us a love for people. Love moving through our hearts matures us and changes us. We need the love of God to be poured through. How? How should we expect to change? And so I want to just go through a few things now as we kind of come to a close. It's going to take a little while to close, but I just want to take you back to the passage now. I realize I've hardly looked at it. 
Let's review some of these things that Paul says, these characteristics of love. Actually, it's not a full definition. This isn't a full definition of love because there are some crucial things missing. There's your homework. Find out what they are. This is not a definition of love. This is characteristics of love and areas in which the Corinthians have failed. Okay? So here it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. That's the new translation of that phrase. I think it's great. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. The other word for that is injustice. I like that too. Rejoices with the truth. It always protects. This is a very high standard. Always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. It's quite a list. Actually, there's 15 different character traits that Paul says. If you're loving, if the love of God is working through you, these are some of the things that you should expect to see. John Piper helpfully points out that they fall into three categories or character traits, if you like, things that we should expect to see growing in our hearts if the love of God is in us. Firstly, the first trait is endurance. Endurance. Love gives us the character trait of endurance. The love of God, in other words, is what enables us to endure all kinds of difficulties. So love is patient. Literally, that word is long-suffering. It puts up with a lot. It keeps going. Are you more long-suffering than you used to be? Are you more patient than you used to be, maybe a year or two ago? Can you look back and say, do you know, something's happened, something's changed my life. It's evidence of the love of God. Not easily angered, it says. I'm not so easily angered as I used to be. I'm not so easily provoked because the love of God has worked. I can endure more hassle. Uh, it's protective of others. Love is protective of others now. And it's able to carry weight of responsibility. I'm, I'm more able to protect those that are weak than I used to be. There's something that God's done in my heart that I don't despise that anymore. But I can carry that weight of responsibility. It keeps believing when things get tough. It, it just keeps trusting. It keeps hope alive. It never gives up. Love is about endurance. It gives us this quality. The love of God works in through our hearts. gives us this quality for endurance. So are you? Are you more able to endure than you used to be? Do you find that you don't give up as easily? You're not so bothered when things go wrong. I mean, you recognize that something gone wrong, but something inside of you enables you. There's a strength there that they used, there didn't used to be. Well, if that's the case, and I would expect it for all of us that we could look back and say, yeah, over the year, I can see, or over the last few years, there's been a work of love in my life. And I'm not the same as I used to be. You're growing up in love. Secondly, the second trait is this, that love produces the fruit of humility. You see, love isn't envious of others. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not so obsessed anymore with myself. That's an evidence of a supernatural work in our lives because naturally we are obsessed with ourselves. It's all about me. It's all about me making progress. It's all about my problems. 
But love enables us somehow to start reaching out and looking out to others. And I don't matter so much anymore because I just love. I just love that person. So I'm going to put myself out. I'm going to spend another evening or I'm going to take somebody out. It's going to be a difficult conversation because I love. Something of love in me. And it gives you this ability, that humility to serve others that you didn't have before. The love of God worked out in our lives. Evidence of maturing work of love in your heart means that you're more approachable. You're not so proud anymore. You're more open to be challenged. Of course, one of the key ways to test this is to ask your husband or wife, have I been become more humble or am I still just as proud and arrogant as I always used to be? I choose not to ask my wife in this context, <laughs> but I'm sure she will tell me later. But you know, one of the things in the hardest things in our relationship for me has been admitting that I'm wrong. See, she's nodding. It's been one of my biggest challenges because, you see, I'm usually right. (laughs) Except when I'm wrong. Um, But, you know, it's taken some convincing, and that's not right. I've not, I shouldn't have been so hard to convince. I shouldn't have been so proud and arrogant. I mean that. And, you know, I'm working on this. And I think I've improved, but I could be wrong. (laughs) She'll let me know later. Evidence of the maturing work of love. And finally, in in a category all of its own, love makes you kind. There isn't any other word that compares with that in the list. Kind. Guys, I'm going to get on a soapbox here. This word kind, what is it? What's kind? Let me say, kind is not nice. I hate that word. I hate the word nice when it's applied to Christians. Oh, he's such a nice man. He's so nice. You know, such a nice lady. Aren't they nice? And you just think, oh, what is nice? You know, it's no nice. I don't like nice. Nice. It's not nice. Do you know, you hate it when you get to the end. That was such a nice sermon. Oh, for goodness. It's not nice. Kind. Christians are not meant to be nice. Is that all they are? Do you know, sometimes I wonder, I wonder if we are too nice. It's pathetic. So I'm just going to get on a soapbox. Because if we're only nice, woe betide any Christian who ever gets passionate or woe betide even more angry. Don't you dare show any passion. Don't you dare take any action. Don't you dare get riled by injustice. You're meant to be nice. You're meant to take everybody on. Anything goes. You're nice. That's what Christians are like. Oh, for goodness sake. Was Jesus nice? Was he really so sweet and mild? Really? 
You know, many have said that this passage could just as well be a description of Jesus, you see. You could, you could read it like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. It's a description of Jesus. It's his character. And it's really challenging if you decide to put your own name in there and say, Rob is patient. Rob is kind. Oh my goodness, you get into trouble before long. It's very challenging. But if we're to apply this passage to Jesus, which I think it's right to do, we've also got to accommodate the Jesus that turned over the temple tables in a rage on two occasions. Jesus, who did not hesitate to rebuke, use sarcasm to make points, insult religious leaders, call people names, unknowingly provoked the authorities to such an extent that they killed him. Was Jesus nice? Jesus wasn't nice, he was kind. So kind that he warned us of the consequences of our sin. So kind that he endured suffering and death. So kind that the goodness, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. The kindness of God is the only thing that stands between us and the wrath of God. The only thing that stands between us and the judgment, the kindness of God. If God was not kind to you, you would not be able to repent. That's what it means to be kind. Are you mature enough to be kind? Because the immature version is nice. Are you mature enough to be kind, to say the tough things when they need to be said? To stand up for injustice? To warn the world about the judgment to come? Are you kind? Are you mature enough to be kind? Are you kind enough to tell your neighbours about Jesus so that they can be saved? This is true kindness. Childlike faith. Grown-up love. Childlike faith. Grown-up love. God wants us to have childlike faith, to have that kind of dependence on Jesus, but he wants us to be mature. He wants us to be able to learn to love like this. I don't think any one of us could put our name in that list, in that passage, and say, I'm there. (sighs) Guys, I tried it earlier. It's impossible. (sighs) Only God can do that. Only God can work that in our hearts. But his Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. And because of that, if we allow ourselves to be led by his love, these traits, these character traits, should increasingly be expected to be seen in our lives, and certainly in our lives together as a church. I just believe that this is a really important message for us as a church, for Jubilee Church. Jubilee stands for kindness in the world. It stands for loving people. 
It stands for rejoicing when people are set free. It stands for standing with people. Jubilee is what that is all about. If we don't have that love in our hearts, then we will be immature and nothing that we do will amount to all that God wants for us. And so I just want to, I want this message to challenge you because it challenged me. So why should you get away with it? (laughs) I want this to challenge us. I want us to go away and think about, am I loving? Have I grown at all in this? Am I maturing? Am I being led by love? Let it challenge you. Don't go too quickly to the grace of God on this. Feel the pressure of it. Feel the weight of that responsibility. God has called us to love people, to love the unlovely, to love people. Let's just stand, shall we? And And I'm not going to make a long appeal or anything like that, but I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us again. Because that's where the love is. The Spirit of God has been shed abroad in our lives. But some of us need to reprioritize in our hearts who takes the lead here. Let love be in charge. Let him lead your heart. It's just in a, I'm just going to shut up for a minute and just... Allow you to talk to God. Allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to touch your heart now. Perhaps you've been angry. Perhaps you've been resentful. Perhaps you've been unloving. Think about your marriage today. Perhaps you've been proud and arrogant. Just let the love of God search you right now. I'm just going to give you a moment. To repent today. Some of you, the Holy Spirit's just putting his finger on some things. And you need to change. You need to allow the love of God back into your heart. Perhaps you've become hard. You need the Holy Spirit to come and soften your heart again. There was a prophetic word just before I preached that Pauline shared with me, which was about God's hands being on us like clay. For some of us, God is shaping our hearts again. He's molding them into something malleable because they've become hard. I'm not going to rush on. I just want you to just feel the weight of God's finger right now. Allow him to touch you. Don't be proud now. This is not the time to be proud. Allow him to search your heart. Lord, I need to be patient. 
Will you please work in my heart the agitation that rules my life? Lord, I've not been kind. I see that now. I need your kindness to motivate me, Lord. I can't do this. Lord, I see I've been so proud, even arrogant. I thought of myself so much better. And that's not a, that's not a loving thing, Lord. I humble myself before you. Lord, I want love to lead the change that needs to come into my life. Love, will you lead me? I take my hands off. Holy Spirit, will you flow through me again? Say amen if that's something in your heart right now. We need to keep coming back to this. We need to keep coming back to the love of God. It's all about the cross. We need to keep coming to the cross. God's big kiss. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, will you send the Holy Spirit now? And would you bring incredible refreshing for your people? Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't condemn, you convict to set us free. Holy Spirit, will you just move in our hearts, even as we leave here, Lord, continue to work in our hearts. We want to be like Jesus. You are our ambition the one who's always kind and never fails. Now, no, Lord, we're not quite in heaven yet. But, Lord, you've said in your word we can have a touch of heaven in all our lives. So, Lord, give us the touch of heaven, which is your love. And, Lord, make us lovers of God, first and foremost, but lovers of others. Lord Jesus, will you change our hearts? Will you motivate our hearts for love? In Jesus' name. Amen.